We are going to finish up this chapter tonight, Lord willing, and the roof doesn't cave in or something. Well, as you know, throughout this entire chapter, Solomon has been addressing his son primarily and speaking naturally to all of us, but he speaks to his son and... uh, and, and deals with the subject of sin. And uh, throughout the chapter, he deals with different sins. And I'm not going to go back and rehearse all of those that we've already talked about. But tonight, when we get down to verse 20 and on through verse 35, it has to do with the matter of sexual sin. Uh, didn't say sex is a sin, but... He talks about sexual sins and, in particular, the strange woman, as he calls her. And uh, in this section, we're going to look at two things. We've divided up into two sections because that's what he does. And in the first part that we'll look at, he explains the purpose for his instructions. And after he explains the purpose for the instructions... Then he expresses his concern for his son's welfare. And, you know, as I thought about this today, you you can almost picture this father-son chat and dad sitting down with his boy and trying to warn him of the pitfalls in life. And boy, look, folks, if, if ever there... Because as we go through this, you're going to see that he's already talked about this in Proverbs He's had a lot to say about it, and he's not through yet. Uh, He's going to say a great deal more about it later on in Proverbs, so there's more to come. And that tells me that, that God is very much aware of our need to be warned about this subject. And sadly, many haven't listened. I can think back over the years and... And I can think of so many men and women that have fallen by the wayside as a result of sexual sins. I can remember as a young preacher, I had an old preacher friend, his name was Leonard Young, and he pastored a church in a little place called Cadiz, Kentucky. Anybody ever been to Cadiz, Kentucky? Well, it's right up there by the Golden Pond, right there on the land between the lakes. And uh, But... Uh, But Leonard said one day uh, during the preacher fellowship meeting and uh, and everybody that knew Leonard, he was an old country preacher and never been, you know, highly educated or anything. But everybody that knew him, uh, the one word that always jumped out and that people talked about is he's one of the wisest men that, you know, that we've ever known. And that was just what he was known for, his great wisdom and he made a comment about the danger of just that that absolutely any christian any preacher is is liable and, and and very much at risk when it comes to uh having an affair and uh, so afterwards he and i were chatting about another matter and in fact he was getting ready to resign the church. He hadn't announced it, and he was wanting to recommend me to the church and and want to know if I, I would be interested, which I wasn't. But anyway, that's what the conversation was about. I said, Brother Leonard, let me ask you a question. I said, you know, 
it just seems to me like that, uh, you know what you said may be generally true, but surely there, there, you know, there, there are some of us Christians and preachers that, you know, that we've matured to the point that we, you know, we can get beyond that danger. And he said something I never forgot. He said, the, the right woman in the right time in the right place and absolutely any normal man is liable to fall. The right woman, and I know you could flip this around also and speak of the women in, in regards to men, but the right woman, because, you know, uh, 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 every person is attracted to different kind of people. I mean, some, some women, a person, you know, a man might not be attracted to, whereas some other, you know, uh, he might be attracted. So it'd have to be the right woman, but it'd have to be the right time also. And it could be a time of deep depression in his life. It could be a time where he is so discouraged that maybe he's about to resign and just throw in the towel. It might be that he's having domestic problems at home. Uh, you know, it could be any number of different things. It's got to be the right time and, and, and then the right place. You know, you're in a place and, you know, and the devil convinces you in your mind that you can do this and nobody's going to know. Nobody will ever find out about it. You can get by with it. The right woman, right time, right place, and any normal man is liable to fall. And, and I'm telling you, looking back over the years, I believe what he said is true. And anybody, the Bible says pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. And, and it is a very dangerous thing for us to assume, well, that could never happen to me. And, oh, no, 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 I'm beyond that. That would never happen to me. Well, uh, I, I, I wouldn't be too sure, and that's why we've got to be so safe. Uh, I remember whenever I moved here, the first, one of the first executive orders as a pastor that I had was cut a window in the office door. Uh, I would refuse to be in my office alone with, with a woman unless that window was there where people could see in. And uh, we, as the Bible says, we've got to abstain from the very appearance of evil. And even, look, even if we are absolutely 100% sure that we would never fall in this regards, the appearance to other people means a lot. And, you know, you can be perfectly innocent and, and, and still, in the eyes of others, look guilty and, and great damage is done, you know, trying to prove you're innocent. You know, that, that's a difficult thing to do. And, and so I'm saying all that to say this, that, you know, this, this is a very important section of Scripture. And uh, so let's notice what Solomon says. He explains the purpose, first of all, verse 20. And uh, we're just going to go verse by verse through this. He says, My son, keep thy father's commandment and forsake not the law of thy mother. Well, you know, hopefully the father's commandment and the mother's law, uh, you know, hopefully those are based on the word of God. And I think that's the intent here that the father and the mother's conveying to you the precepts of God's word and wouldn't it be wonderful if we could get every child to realize that their parents are older and wiser than they are, you know, that, that, that they've been there and done that, 
and, and that what the parents say ought to be given serious consideration. You know, you keep hoping that, uh, well, I guess as a parent, we always hope and expect our kids to not make the same dumb mistakes we made when we were growing up. Uh, but you keep hoping that one of these days there's going to be this special kind of a kid that's going to come along and, uh, and, and just like a sponge soak up everything that you say as a parent and, and just follow your advice and so on and so forth. And, and you, you just envision what great things could be done in the life of a, of a child that would tap into that resource and do that. And, and so, you know, th- this is what Solomon's saying. Listen to what your daddy's saying. Listen to your mother's law. Verse 2, bind them continually upon thine heart and uh, tie them about thy neck. Now, this is based on the practice of the Jews back in those days that wore what is known as phylacteries, and they'd take them like a little leather box, and they'd put bits and pieces of the law in, the, in, in, in this little uh, phylactery, and they would carry it around. They'd bind it on the front lip between their eyes or on their neck or on their wrists, and, uh, and, and, and notice that, that by speaking here of the heart and the neck, I think it's interesting that he is covering that which is inward and that which is outward. And so we are to embrace God's law with our heart, but we are to display them outwardly by our manner of life. One of my, one of my favorite verses uh, is found over in Titus, and you, you almost never hear anybody talk about this verse. It's in chapter 2 and verse 10. You don't need to turn there, but you might want to jot it down. And it tells us that we are to adorn the doctrines. Adorn the doctrines. In other words, we are to beautify the doctrines of God, the teachings of God. And, uh, you know, whenever we talk to the average person on the street about the Word of God and God's commandments, the things He requires, most people think of that in a negative sense. You know, it's not something they relish. It's not something they they desire. It's kind of like God is this cosmic killjoy or something, you know, trying to restrict us and take away our freedom and ruin our fun. And uh, and in reality, God has our best interest at heart. And, and so his advice to his son is to, to have the Word of God in your heart and display the Word of God just as you would wear it in the phylactery around your neck, for example, or outwardly. Uh, display the Word of God by your manner of life. In other words, as old J. Vernon McGee used to say, you know, down where the rubber meets the road. Uh, you put it in shoe leather. Make it real. Now, verse 22. When thou goest, it shall lead thee... And when thou sleepest, it shall keep thee. And when thou awakest, it shall talk with thee. That's based on Deuteronomy chapter number 6. Let me just turn back there for a moment. Chapter 6 in Deuteronomy. And, uh, and here we find God. This, by the way, this section is called the Shema. And it, it, was, it was memorized by all of the children Every time the, the, the Jewish people met together, they would all quote this section of Scripture. Hear, O Israel, verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord 
Our God is one Lord, and thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all of thy heart and with all of thy soul and with all of thy might. And these words which I command thee this day shall be in thine heart, and thou shalt teach them diligently unto thy children, and shalt talk of them when thou sittest in thine house, and when thou walkest by the way, and when thou liest down, and when thou risest up. And thou shalt bind them for a sign upon thine hand, and they shall be as frontlets between thine eyes, and thou shalt write them upon the post of thy house and on the gates. In other words, everywhere you look, you have these, these post-it notes, we'd call them today, with scriptures on them, reminding us of the Word of God. And so that was the practice, and, and, and here we see Solomon basing this statement on those very verses that I just read. But, but I want you to notice he describes the benefits of uh, embracing God's law in your heart and displaying it in your life. And notice he mentions three things here. He says, it will lead thee. In other words, the wisdom of God's Word guides us and directs our steps. I'm so glad that we don't have to figure out everything ourselves. You know what? Trial and error. Well, I'm, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to try this and see if it works. Somebody says experience is the best teacher. Well, you know, I know what you mean by that, but the best thing to do is to listen to God's Word so you don't have to experience it and just do what the Word of God says. And that's why over in Proverbs chapter 3 that we've already talked about, he says, Trust in the Lord with all of thine heart. And he said, Lean not to your own understanding. In other words, don't depend on yourself, but you trust in the Lord with all of your heart. And that's what he's telling them here. He's basically repeating that. And the Word of God will lead thee. But notice, secondly, he says, And it will keep thee. In other words, that has to do with guarding, protecting us, and those who love the Lord, who obey the Lord, they can put their head on the pillow at night and they can sleep in peace knowing that God is guarding them. So notice, it will lead thee, it will keep thee, and then he says it will talk with thee. In other words, wisdom is personified here. It's as though wisdom is talking to us. It converses with us and counsels us. And it tells us, you know, how we ought to think and how we ought to behave. And, you know, as a Christian, you know what I'm talking about because uh, those verses of Scripture that you memorize and then at some, some special time in your life you might be facing a temptation, you might be facing a trial of some sort or a difficulty or have a question, and the Holy Spirit will bring those Scriptures to your mind, and all of a sudden those scriptures, you, you might not even be able to remember the chapter and the verse, but you can quote that scripture, and, and, and that's God talking to you. That's the Lord speaking. That's why I often say, you know, what God's Word says is more important than what I say about it. And, and, you know, whenever I stand up, or, or whoever it is, Sunday school teacher, and we stand up and we read the Word of God, Nothing said that day will be more important than what we read from the Word of God. It talks with us. Verse 23, For the commandment is a lamp, and the law is light, and reproofs of instructions 
instruction are the way of life. Now, notice the two key words here, commandment and law. The word commandment has to do with any particular Thing, the commandment, for example, that's issued by God. But the word law is generally used in the sense of just in embracing the whole of God's law, uh, the entirety of it. And, and, and both, whether it's something that is specific about a, you know, a specific issue or whether we're talking about the law in general, notice it provides light in order to direct our steps. And, you know, so many times we think about God's Word as being hard or difficult. And, uh, and, and by the way, if that's true. Sometimes it can be difficult to obey God because of our personal preference, you know. We, we, let's face it, we don't always want to do what God tells us to do. The Bible talks about loving your enemies and forgiving those, you know, that hurt you. And sometimes we don't want to, you know. We want to punch them in the nose. We don't want to forgive them. And so that's the way we feel. And and yet we know that this is what God's Word says. And we know we're obligated to do that. And uh, so even though it seems hard, either because of personal preference or because of, let's say, popularity, it's not the popular thing to do. But the whole point is the benefits of obeying God's Word, which he is about to describe in the next verse here, outweighs outweighs the difficulties in keeping it. And the next phrase, notice he says, reproofs of instruction are the way of life. Man, I mean, we're talking about life and death now. I mean, we're talking about that which affects not just, you know, our daily routine, but everything about our life. Verse 24, to keep thee from the evil woman, from the flattery of the tongue of a strange woman. So again, reminding his son that obedience to God's law protects us from sin. That's the whole point. Now, having done that, beginning in verse 25, he begins to express his concern for his son's welfare. You know, it's one thing to impart instruction, uh, you know, to explain uh, what the Bible says and so on and so forth. That, that's one thing, but it's another thing to express concern for people's welfare. You know, so many times we, we think about the difference between preaching and teaching. And, you know, sadly, a lot of folks don't know the difference between preaching and, and teaching. And, and the fact of the matter is, in teaching, our primary goal is to teach, impart information, uh, to help people learn. Well, you know, we ought to do the same thing in preaching. In other words, a, a sermon ought to be educational, uh, just as a Sunday school lesson is. But when it comes to preaching, there's also the exhortation there that, that goes along with it, that is exhorting people to respond to the message. In other words, just giving them intellectual ammunition is one thing, but some way or another, it's got to get to the heart of the person. And so that's why here he is expressing his concern for his son. You know, he could have said, now, look, son, I've given you these instructions, I've given you these warnings, 
And, and now if you want to be a knucklehead and go on and ignore what I'm saying, well, you just help yourself, but I've relieved myself of my obligation. I've told you what you ought to do, and I'm not going to tell you anymore. Now it's up to you, and just walk away. And, and you know, and he could have he could have told his neighbor and friends, well, I'll tell you one thing. I, I, I made sure my son was well grounded in the Word of God. You know, that's not enough. Some way or another, we've got to reach them emotionally and help them to understand that we have their best interest at heart and God has their best interest at heart. So that's why, uh, after explaining this, he begins to express his concern. Verse 25, he says, Lust not after her beauty in thine heart, and neither let her take thee with her eyelids. So, now notice he's looking at the subject from two different angles here. There is the inward lust, and there's the outward allurement. And notice he says, lust not after her beauty. That word lust is exactly the same Hebrew word that's translated covet over in the book of Exodus where the Ten Commandments is given in verse number 7 where he says, covet not thy neighbor's wife. Exactly the same word is used here. So this is what he's talking about. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife. Jesus dealt with this subject. Remember Jesus said in the book of Matthew, uh, whoso looketh on a woman with lust uh, uh, in his heart has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And so the Lord is dealing with that, helping us to understand it's not just what we do outwardly, it's what's going on within us. And, you, you know, lust might go undetected by other people. You know, we might, might be able to hide it from others. They'll never know it. But we know it. And God knows it. And, and that makes it an extremely serious matter because God knows what's going on in our heart. Well, to make temptation all the more difficult to resist, notice he speaks about the allurement of this woman. And he said, neither let her take thee with her eyelids. You know, and, and in other words, those those glances by the woman. I've often said, and, and by the way, I've got scriptural grounds for doing this because here and everywhere else, it, it speaks about the woman being taken captive or the man being taken captive by the woman. And we generally think of affairs being initiated by the man. But in the Bible, in the Bible, in all of the illustrations we th see through Proverbs, it's the woman who catches the man, as it were. And, and I've often said this, you know, a man might lust in his heart, and he might flirt to a certain extent. Uh, but, but most of the time, you know, he, he, he knows where to draw the line, and he, he, he's not going to put himself in an embarrassing situation to where you know, the husband will find out or his wife will find out or whatever. So he, he's not going to go beyond what what she allows him to do. And any time there's an affair that takes place, he may be lusting after the woman. He may be flirting with the woman. Uh, I, I remember several years ago, and, and this has happened on more than one occasion, I come so close to punching a church member in the face because it was one of those comments to my wife uh, when he didn't think I could hear. 
that had to do, it's one of those things, you know, where uh, it's worded in such a way that if you confront him about it, he can say, oh, I didn't mean it like that. You know, you just took it that way. Well, you idiot. I mean, if it can be taken that way, then you ought to rephrase it, you see. And, and so, I, you know, I, I'm convinced in my heart. I know exactly what was going on. But the point I'm trying to make is, it, it, at some point in time, she's got to say, come on, big boy, it's okay, you know, it's all right. You know, and it may be with her eyes here. He's talking about that she takes the, captures you with her eyelids. Verse 26, for by means of a whorish woman, a man is brought... Uh, to a piece of bread, and the adulteress will hunt for his precious life. Now, from this verse on to the end of the chapter, Solomon sets forth arguments that are designed to deter his son from this sin of adultery or fornication, whatever the case might be. And the first thing, notice, that he speaks of in warning him is that it can lead you to poverty. A man is brought low... Uh, to a piece of, of bread. Now, keep in mind, whenever we think about bread, we automatically, we, you know, we think about uh, Mrs. Baird's big old loaf of bread or something like that, but uh, the bread was just a flat, kind of like what we'd call a pancake nowadays. And, and whenever he talks about a piece of that, we're talking about the smallest piece. In other words, the best word to describe it is the crumb of bread. In other words, you get involved with another woman, you commit adultery, uh, you cheat on your wife, and, 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 and this is going to lead to destitution. It's going to lead you into poverty. You're going to end up with nothing but a, but breadcrumbs. That's all you're going to have. And that's the way sin does. Like the old, old outline that nearly every preacher has used, sin will take you further than you want to go. It'll keep you longer than you want to stay, and it'll cost you more than you want to pay. And that's the way sin is. It will. When I first started preaching, as I said before, it was in a rescue mission, and I was shocked and amazed to realize, you know, generally we think about these people sitting in the rescue mission, they're a bunch of drunks, and, and, you know, we think about them being homeless people and stuff like that, uneducated people and and people that never really had a chance in life. And, and as I got to know these men, I, I, I learned, heard the stories. We had doctors and lawyers and all kinds of very educated people. And as a result of their sin, it had brought them down to poverty. And, and, and that's what he's warning his son about. And notice he says the adulteress will hunt for the precious life. In other words, you're the prey. She is out hunting for you, and her goal is to capture, and ultimately it will bring about not just your destitution, but it will bring about your literal destruction. Verse 27, Can a man take fire in his bosom and his clothes not be burned? Of course not. I mean, you know, who in the world would think that they could just, you know, pick up a, you know, a bundle of burning logs or whatever, you know, and pull that fire into your bosom and think your clothes are not going to get burned? And we we know that wouldn't happen. You're you're going to get burned. But evidently, a lot of folks think they're the exception to the rule because 
they do it anyway. They, you know, they think they can get by with it. And uh, so they, they ignore this sound advice. They ignore the warning. And, and literally, when we're unfaithful to our marriage vows, it's like taking fire into our bosom. We're going to get burned. We're going to get hurt. Verse 28. Can one go upon hot coals and his feet not be burned? Well, I wouldn't try that, would you? Now, I know those demon-possessed people over there in Africa, some of them, they claim that they can run on the beds of coals and their feet not be burned. I don't know about that, but I'm not demon-possessed, and I, you know, I, I'm not going to try it. I remember whenever I was a boy, and, uh, you know, most, most of the days we went without shoes, and we had an old gravel road where we lived, and, Boy, I could get out there and run down that old gravel road. I mean, those rocks, some of them, you know, an inch and bigger in diameter, and run down that road, and that didn't bother me a bit. My feet were so callous. Uh, Boy, I don't even go barefoot in the house nowadays. Seriously, I'm never barefoot. And uh, I certainly wouldn't walk on coals of fire. And it's just amazing how that, that sin so entices people that they do things that are totally contrary to common sense. It just doesn't make sense what they do. Well, verse 29, So, so he that goeth into his neighbor's wife, whoso toucheth her shall not be innocent. And, and that's another way of saying that his sin will not go unpunished. Uh, so many times people think, well, we've got away with that. But they really haven't. Uh, You know, I am really, truly convinced of this. That there are so many times that people have committed uh, sins of different sorts. But this one in particular, and I've got a reason for saying this because the Bible, you know, talks about the fact that this sin's different than, than any other sin. It really is. The Bible tells us that very clearly because this sin is a sin against our own body. It affects us. And uh, even the doctors can tell you those that have been with numerous sexual partners are more prone to certain types of cancer and what have you. But all of that being said, what I'm saying is you would be amazed at how many people are sitting in churches every week that have had an affair and, and the wife or the husband, whatever the case, the wife or the husband, they've never found about it, out about it. The other person's spouse, they've never found out about it. Nobody knows but, but these two. And, and, and now a good number of years has gone by and they're thinking in their mind, Got by with it. God hasn't punished me. I I just believe with all of my heart, and I've often said, you know, God's people, somewhere in this world, because we know when we stand before the Lord, all of our sins have been accounted for. It's under the blood. We're not going to give an account of our sins as Christian people in heaven. All of our sins are done for. I mean, it's a done deal. We have been forgiven I know we give an account for the manner in which we live and the way that we use our life, but God doesn't have a laundry list of all of our sins. Oh, yeah, there's one, you know, that I kind of overlooked, and, you know, that's going to cost you two or three crowns or something like that. 
Uh, and that's why the Bible speaks about chastisement and says if we be without chastisement, we are bastards and not sons. In other words, we're not legitimately the children of God if we can sin on earth and not get chastised for it. Whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth. Amen? It's what the Bible says. And so many times somebody, you know, years later they've committed this sin and they think they've got by with it. And why is it that we never, ever think about heart disease, cancer, whatever it is? I'm telling you, nothing happens by accident, folks. And, and I'm not saying if you've got heart disease or cancer or, or some other health, I'm not, I'm not saying that's because you covered up a sin. I'm not saying that. But I'm saying it could be. And we need to keep that in our mind, that some way or another we're going to end up God's going to deal with us because he says, notice here, that he shall not be innocent. Verse 30, men do not despise a thief if he steal to satisfy his soul when he's hungry. Now, to understand this, we have to keep reading. And this is a, a really, oh, I've got to hurry. This is a good point here and a good time to make mention of the fact that that all of the, all of the cults are built upon some section of scripture that has been interpreted without consideration for the rest of the scriptures. Am I making sense? You've you, you've got to read everything in its context, and you've got to look at the Bible as a whole. And so, you know, if you just took this one verse and stopped there, you know, you, you, you know, you, you don't really get the story, but when you read on, you understand. But if he, that is the thief who is hungry, he doesn't have anything, he's hungry, so he steals, he gets desperate. And if it be found, he shall restore sevenfold, and he shall give all of the substance of his house. You see, motive matters with God, and if a starving man steals to feed himself or his family, you know, we would have pity on that man. And, and, and you and I both know we wouldn't feel the same way towards some wealthy person that, you know, that stole something just out of greed. But here's some guy that's starving. He's hungry, and so he steals, and we have sympathy for him. But notice here that Solomon tells us that 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 even though he has stolen something, taken something that didn't belong to him because he's hungry, that doesn't get him off the hook. That he shall restore sevenfold. In other words, he's got to pay back what he took. Seven times. He's got to make it right. Verse 32, But whoso committeth adultery with a woman lacketh understanding... He, uh, he, he that doeth it destroyeth his own soul. Well, now we see the point. You know, uh, if such a crime as stealing to feed oneself is, is uh, deserving of punishment, how much more can we expect the sin of adultery uh, to be punished? Remember, under the Levitical law, it was punishable by what? Death. You know, I, I've heard people say, well, one sin's no worse than another. Well, 
Some will get you killed and some won't. So, I, I, you know, in my way of thinking, yeah, there's some worse than others. And so it gives us an idea of just how serious it is. Verse 33, a wound and dishonor shall he get and his reproach shall not be wiped away. And as we see in the next verse here that, you know, that we can expect that the outraged husband is going to Extract revenge. Notice, for jealousy is the rage of a man, and therefore he will not spare in the day of vengeance. Jealousy will inflame the anger of a man to the highest degree to where he'll have no mercy on the man who hurt him so deeply. I think every husband feels exactly the same way. And and that is, you know, the one thing above everything else that that would cause me to go off of the deep end is for somebody to to mistreat my wife. I mean, that would do it quicker than anything. Uh, I, I mean, you, you know, I, I I would get highly offended if somebody mistreated my kids. But I love my wife more than I love my kids, and uh, and and consequently, uh, when you th- somebody sang a song the other day, uh, where did I hear that? A je- a jealous. Uh, I'm jealous, or I wasn't in church. It was on TV. Does anybody know that song, something about being jealous? You know, that, that's just natural for a husband to be jealous. And, and boy, if you want to, if you want to get killed, you just mess around with somebody else's wife, and that's a good way to get dead. Verse thirty-five. He will not regard any ransom. You buy him all the beers you want. It's not going to cool him off. And neither will he rest content, though thou givest many gifts. Oh, man, I'll give you my bass boat. Just don't shoot me. <laughs> Boom. <laughs> I mean, when a man's in a jealous rage, he doesn't care about bass boats or anything else. It's, all he's thinking about is getting even. Now, we, we've got to wrap it up there. And so, uh, the, the, the one thing, and, and if you notice here, Solomon's been speaking in the third person in hypothetical situations all through this until he gets down here to verse number 35 and uh, he uses the word, notice, thou. In other words, he's making it personal now. And that's, I think, something important to note. He wanted to make sure his son got the message. And that's why he uses the word thou. Son, are you listening? Did you get the message? And, and, and I hope that each and every one of us gets the message that God is, is sending us that, that sexual sin is a dangerous thing that jeopardizes our very lives. And... Uh, Oh, when we think about the temptations of our young people, it's, uh, it's scary. And we need to get this message across to them. Thank you for being here tonight.